0: A quick warning before we begin. This episode will contain the names of people and places that are entirely fictional, which I'm sure to mispronounce often. I hope you'll find it in your heart to forgive me. Enjoy the show. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Stephen or Else Media, this is Hither Came Conan, the podcast that's returning to a comic it's already talked about, and frankly, it's pretty okay with that. I'm your host, my name is Stephen, and yeah, the comic we're talking about today, while it is a new issue number, it's actually a reprint of something we've already covered because, well, I'll tell you what, let me just get into it. This week, we're talking about Conan the Barbarian number 22. This issue sports a cover date of January 1973, but it hit the stands in October of 1972. It sold for 20 cents, and it is entitled The Coming of Conan. It was written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Barry Windsor Smith. The inker was Dan Adkins, and the letterer was Sam Rosen. Into the boat! Previously in Conan the Barbarian... Okay, hold on now. I uh, just kind of went into automatic pilot there for a moment, so I got to apologize. But this isn't your typical episode of Hither Came Conan because issue number 22 isn't your typical Conan issue. Like I said, it's a reprint, and it's a reprint of Conan the Barbarian number one, which, of course, we talked about already back in May. But I don't know. I thought it would be fun to talk about it again. You know, it's been six months. Give it another look, see what's changed, see if my opinion has changed. I mean, why not? Right? So I started to write up a whole new synopsis of the issue for this episode. And I tried to take great pains not to write what I wrote the first time around. And as I struggled with that for about an hour, I thought, why fight it? The synopsis I wrote the first time around is a pretty good synopsis. And I figured, well, I'd save a little time by not writing up something entirely new. And if saving time is the goal here, and it is partially, I mean, the true goal is providing to you, my barbarian children, an entertaining and informative podcast. But hey, if I can make less work for myself while doing that, then yeah, that's that's what I'm going to do. With that in mind, not only did I not write up a new synopsis. I didn't re-record the original one because why would I? Anyway, I'm beginning to fall into a trap. It's a trap! You know, the one where I feel like I have to over-explain every decision that I make. So let's not do that. Enjoy the rest of the show. Is anyone still around after all that? Into the boat! Our story opens in Vanaheim. It's summer. It's summer. And summer means raiding parties and not the kind with chips and salsa and all that, though. (laughs) That would be pretty fun to see in a Conan comic. You don't even know, dude. No, this is a war party, a big bevy of bare-chested blonde barbarians from nearby Asgard. They are the Aesir and they have come to make war upon the Vanir, the ginger warriors of Vanaheim. Among the fighting lads of Asgard is young Conan, just 20 years old, a barbarian mercenary from Sameria, who having just joined the Asgardian ranks that very morning, shows that he's got skills, earning that Icer cheddar as he kills a Vanir warrior named Gondur before saving the life of the Iser leader, Olav. Soon the Vanir are in retreat, and for a moment, Conan takes command, stopping the Icer from giving chase. Olav, annoyed at Conan's impertinence, can't help but agree with the youth, telling his warriors that now is the time to bind their wounds and bury their dead. Soon they will take the fight to the Vanir. As they chill, Olav uses the time to get to know Conan, asking the youth why he joined the Iser over the Vanir. Conan's answer is simple. The Iser pay more. Meanwhile, at the Vanir camp, as the weary ginger fighters lick their wounds, Their leader, Volf, looks down at his men from above. He's up there in the rocks, overlooking the camp, and wearing a wolf's head atop his own like a cowl, he's hanging with his homie Hothar, lamenting the fact that they're all going to be dead by morning. Gonder, it seems, the Vanir that Conan took out, was Volf's most skilled warrior. The rest of his men are cutthroats, used to killing from the shadows. And now that there no longer remains a soldier who's enough of a badass to go toe-to-toe with Olav, Conan, and the rest, Volf and Hothar decide to abandon the men and flee, lest they die right along with them. And so, telling his men that they're going to go off to consult with the gods, Volf and Hothar beat feet, everybody out, leaving the others to face the soon-to-arrive Vanir alone. Soon the cowardly Volf and his craven companion come upon a cave with strange symbols painted on the stone above the entrance and a vastly glow emanating from within. Giving over to their curiosity, the two enter and find a massive temple inside. It's bigger on the inside. Is it? I noticed. Within the temple, Volf and Hothar find a skinny old man and a young woman. The old man, who calls himself Sharkosh the Shaman, tells the two that their coming was foretold, shown to him in a vision when last he gazed into the Star Stone, a large gem the size of his head that he explains fell from the sky many years ago. Volf hopes that Skarkosh can call upon the forces within the Star Stone to help him defeat the Icer, and the Shaman tells him that he can do just that, but for a price. Sharkosh is in need of a strong Young warrior, one who is far mightier than either of them. And rather than taking offense, Volf offers up Conan to the old man. But, Volf wonders, if Skarkosh is really a shaman with a powerful magic gem, why does he need a strong warrior? Skarkosh tells him to mind his own business. Mind your own business! That getting a hold of a mighty warrior like Conan is not for him, but for the young woman at his side. His handmaiden, whose smile, he says, has made more bearable an old man's self-exile. And so the shaman works his mojo, chanting away in an ancient, evil language of magic. I want to kill everyone. Satan is good. Satan is our pal. Meanwhile, Conan and the crew come upon the Vanir camp, and the battle begins anew, when suddenly a trio of winged demons appear and attack everyone. The demons kill Olav and then go for Conan, taking him up into the air, only to let him go. Conan smashes back down to earth, blacking out. He awakens to find himself inside Skarkosh the Shaman's cave temple. With him in the cage is Tara, the old wizard's handmaiden. Outside are Volf and Hothar, along with the old man and the three demons he had summoned forth using the Star Stone. Speaking to Tara, when Conan refers to Skarkosh as a sorcerer, Tara corrects him. <laughs> you dumb bastard explaining that the old man's power comes not from within but from the starstone making him not so much a sorcerer or a wizard it's bad luck to kill a wizard which is why he calls himself a shaman speaking of the old man as conan is getting to know terra the shaman kicks off a bit more of his magical shenanigans dancing about the starstone and calling upon it to show the two vanir men volf and hothar a demonstration of its power because, well, Wolf and Hothar don't believe the stone can do much of anything. Suddenly, the Star Stone shows everyone within the cave temple visions of the past, projecting the images out into the open air. They see the mighty kingdom of Velusia in the days when Atlantis still stood. They see Cole, the Atlantean barbarian who became king of Velusia, and watch as the oceans drink Atlantis. They see a baby born on a battlefield in Cimmeria, not twenty winters past. They see the baby grow into a man, a warrior, and as the visions move from past to future, they watch as the warrior takes up the crown of a mighty Hyborian empire, placing it upon his head. The warrior king from the vision is Conan, and Skarkosh grows restless, confused. How can the Starstone show a vision of Conan's future when the shaman plans to sacrifice the barbarian youth, Stealing his future. The visions continue and they watch in awe as mankind enters another stone age following some great disaster, forming men to rise from the mud once again, clawing their way from the primitive slime to creating wonders like the pyramids in Egypt to space travel. Wolf and Hothar freak out, begging Skarkosh to make it stop, exclaiming that they were not meant to see such things. But it's too late. The visions have driven the old man insane. It's a house, A house. Conan, in the meantime, ignoring what the Star Stone has to show, is able to break the wooden bars on his cage, bursting his way into freedom. Not wasting any time, Conan goes straight for the Star Stone, lifting it from its home and throwing it at the wall. The stone explodes, knocking the Vanir men and the demons from their feet. Conan grabs up Terra and makes his escape. Meanwhile, in the cave temple, with the star stone destroyed, the three demons are pulled back into the netherworld from whence they came. Conan, the girl still in his arms, leaps into the open air, escaping the cave just in the nick of time as it explodes behind him, killing those left within. The Cimmerian doesn't have long to celebrate, however, as Terra berates him, calling him a fool for dooming her. Telling him that he doesn't understand. And as Conan watches in gate-mouthed horror, she transforms into one of the winged demons. Tara, it turns out, is from the same dimension as the three demons whom Skarkosh had called from the Star Stone. Conan was meant to take her place, to be transferred into the Star Stone so that Kara could remain on Earth, living the rest of her life as a human. With the Star Stone destroyed, however, Her fate has become that of her fellow demons, and Conan is helpless as she fades away, leaving this plane of existence forever. Conan now alone ruminates on the vision shown to him by the Starstone, an older vision of himself placing a crown upon his head. But before he can dwell on it too much, the image fades from his mind as he walks away into the night. All right. So I think the question most people had when this issue was released was simply, why does the cover promise the story, The Shadow of the Vulture, when inside it's just a reprint of issue number one? What the hell, man? On last week's episode, knowing that this issue was a reprint, but not knowing why they published this reprint, I assume that the deadlines just finally caught up to everyone And so they had no choice but to go with the reprint. And at the same time, it didn't really make sense that they would do that and still use this new cover, which was obviously meant for a story called The Shadow of the Vulture. I mean, it made me feel like they were trying to hide something or trick people into picking it up on the newsstand. You know, look, here's another new Conan issue. Don't open it. Just buy it. You can feel confident that this is a new issue because of the cover. See, it's new stuff. Shadow of the Vulture. So buy it, but don't open it until you get home. Then people got home, sat down to read their so-called new Conan issue. They opened it up and... Surprise, sucker! You fell for our little trap. Oh, you are such a loser. But really, (laughs) really, I couldn't have been more wrong. In the letters page of this issue... Well, there aren't any letters. Instead is an explanation to the readers regarding why they have this issue with a new cover for a new story on the outside, but an old reprinted story on the inside. And it turns out it had nothing at all to do with deadlines. It seems that the crew were hard at work on The Shadow of the Vulture when 13 pages of the issue were lost in the mail. Now, I know that Barry Windsor Smith was English, still is, and that when the series began, he was living in London. In fact, at one point, either right before or right after he was offered the job on Conan, he had been in the States, but was forced to go back to England because, well, per Roy from that wonderful book of his, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian Volume 1, Barry didn't have a green card, which apparently one needs in order to live and work in the United States. Now, I don't know if I've told this story on the show yet, and maybe I have, but since this episode is all about repeats, here it goes. According to Roy, sometime in the late 60s, Barry, while living in London, had sent some artwork into Marvel. You know, a sample. Hey, fellas at Marvel, here's what I can do. Stanley looked him over, and he felt that Barry had some promise, and so he mailed a response Back to Barry, saying something like, "Hey, this stuff shows promise. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to do Stanley. I'm sorry. I apologize." Anyway, his response was something like, "This stuff shows promise. Next time you're in New York, stop by the Marvel offices, and we can talk." Barry, along with writer and fellow Englishman Steve Parkhouse, hopped a plane and took Stan up on his offer. Soon, Barry was working for Marvel, though he hadn't quite found a place to live. Roy says that Barry would stay with friends, you know, rotating through everyone he knew who lived in New York, sleeping on couches and floors and all that stuff. In fact, Roy even claims that Barry's living situation was so dire that he had to do some of his penciling, which would have been stuff like fill-in work for some X-Men issues. He had to do that on a park bench. Anyway, at some point, he was forced to go back to London, And so he would mail his art to New York, which sounds fraught with all sorts of danger, such as, I don't know, stuff getting lost in the mail. There's many a slip twixt a cup and a lip. And that, of course, is exactly what happened here. Furthermore, the now misleading shadow of the Vulture cover had not only been completed, it was printed and was waiting for pages to be added to it. They didn't even have the option of skipping the month, you know, just Not put the issue out in October and instead delay it and release it in November because by the time they realized that those 13 pages were lost, it was just too late. The printing schedules for October of 1972 were already set up, and contractually, Marvel was required to publish an issue of Conan the Barbarian that month. And so Marvel decided to reprint issue one because as they claim in the letters column, it's what quote hundreds of readers have begged us to do anyway. End quote. However, so that Roy and the others wouldn't feel like a slime ball, bait and switch, big bunch of assholes, they included one new, never before seen pinup. Or to quote the letters column once more, a full page phantasmagoria of a barbarian hero, penciled and inked by Barry two or three years back, as a warm-up for the Conan mag. We hope it'll ease the blow just a bit to those of you who picked up this ish on the basis of the cover, and then discovered you already possessed a copy of the story inside. For which, entrepreneuring comics dealers are already asking and getting as much as $5 a copy. Now, in case anyone asks, I did a quick eBay search, and currently... The asking price of Conan the Barbarian, number one, from 1970, ranges from $100 to $5,000. I mean, they got some folks on there asking for 40 bucks for the facsimile edition. So yeah, if you have that original issue somewhere within your collection, and it's in good condition, you might want to see about selling it. Hello, rich people. Troy's joining you. Yes, I'll hold. Anyway, the pinup that they're talking about is pretty sweet. It's four panels and it shows Conan wearing a winged helmet, which reminds me a lot of Warlord, which was another sword and sorcery comic from the 70s. Uh, Warlord, however, was from DC and it didn't actually begin publication until a couple of years after this pinup made its debut. But Damn, I don't understand how this could be Barry a couple of years before the first issue of Conan because it looks a lot like the Barry that we're currently seeing in these comics from 1972 when Barry returned to Conan. At least the Barry that has either been inked by himself or those pages from issue 19 that were colored and published with just Barry's pencils. Basically, this pinup just proves that no one should be inking Barry, but Barry. you damn right. Now, before we move on and I start getting into my thoughts on the issue compared to the first time I read it back in May, there's something that I have now that I didn't have then. And that is the aforementioned Roy Thomas book, Barbarian Life, a literary biography of Conan the Barbarian, volume one. And so I wanted to point out a couple of quick behind the scenes stuff. First. While Roy admits that with this first issue, he was just kind of easing into things, or as he puts it, feeling my way along, he chose to open the series in the North because of the Frost Giants' Daughter, which, yeah, we've talked about that one. It seems that Roy was anxious to get to the whole gleaming city thing in regard to Conan, but he also wanted to honor Conan's first Robert E. Howard adventure, which both Roy and I, along with many others, consider to be the Frost Giant's Daughter. Now, of course, I'm speaking chronologically the timeline of Conan's life, not the timeline in which these stories were written or published. With that said, there are others who consider Tower of the Elephant to be Conan's first Robert E. Howard adventure. And there's been a lot of debate about that over the years, which I have gotten into before, so I'm not going to get into it here. But for some reason, At the time that issue number one was published, The Frost Giant's Daughter was a story that Marvel had yet to acquire the rights to. So Roy came up with his own story that put Conan in the North fighting with the Icer, and is chronologically set before The Frost Giant's Daughter. And so that allowed Roy to honor the timeline in which the Tower of the Elephant came after The Frost Giant's Daughter. Moving on in the scene where the shaman uses the star stone to show everyone the past and future, Roy wanted to include even just a panel showing Robert E. Howard's Cole character, mainly because Roy, even then, had aspirations to publish a series starring Cole, which he would less than a year later when Cole the Conqueror number 1 hit the stands in March of 1971 by Roy, Ross Andrew, Wally Wood, and Sam Rosen. So, when Barry turned in his pages for issue one, Stan looked them over and he asked that a new first page be done a splash page that not only briefed the reader on the Hyborian Age, but one that was a bit more iconic or symbolic. Roy, using his not so great artistic skills, sketched out an idea for the new splash page that Barry then used to create what we have now. They also had Barry add a new page two that would show Conan fighting along the icer. As it was, the original page two was what is now page three. But by adding a new page two and pushing the original page two to page three, they had one page too many. And so a page had to be pulled, which apparently was a fight scene. And I wonder if that page still exists. And if so, who might have it? Let me know, Steven or at gmail. Com. Just a couple of more quick items before we move on. The story title, The Coming of Conan, came from the title of one of the Gnome Press collected volumes from back in the 50s. Tara, from this issue, she was named after Roy's sister. And in The Savage Sword of Conan, issue number 222 from June of 1994, Roy got the chance to tell this story all over again, but this time with John Buscema, which yeah, I'm going to have to add that to the list of comics I will want to try to read and talk about for future bonus episodes. Until then, how about we move on to Steven's favorite, favorite bits. bits? So, this isn't going to be Steven's favorite bits as we normally do it. But with that said, we do have to talk about the cover, right? Regardless of the fact that it has nothing to do with the story. And I don't know, I like everything about it, except for the giant figure of the vulture. Now, according to the Grand Comic Book Database, this cover was penciled, inked, and colored by Barry Windsor Smith, and it is mostly great. I would even like the giant figure of the vulture if he hadn't inked it in blue and red. But it is nice to see Barry experimenting with color. It just doesn't work for me. Everything else is great. Conan The soldiers on horseback, the damsel in distress, the flames at their ankles. But that big vulture guy just does not do it for me at all. As for the rest of the issue, uh, (laughs) I forgot how much Barry's art looked like Jack Kirby's back then, which would have been, what, a little over two years before issue number 22 was published. I think I mentioned that already. Not only did that surprise me. But the look of the Northmen, the Acer and the Vanier, the way they are dressed, that shocked me too. I completely forgot about all of that. Now that I've read it again, however, I do remember that the first time I read it and then talked about it back in May, that I said that I thought the Northmen looked like cavemen. And they do. Many of them are wearing nothing at all except these tight little trunks. One or two of them may have a sash or a vest of some sort on, but most of them were naked except for their jockey shorts. Heck, many of them are going about with bare feet. And I just think it's weird, especially when I compare that to Fafnir, who was a Vannerman. So when we first meet Fafnir in issue number six, Devil Wings over Shadazar, he's wearing a sleeveless shirt of fur with gold belts crisscrossing his chest. He has some sort of skirt on, and he's wearing boots. Granted, at this point, Fafnir is pretty much a throwaway character. Roy didn't know the guy would be coming back until issue number 17, The Gods of Balsagath. And in that one, he's got on a sleeveless shirt of chainmail, little trunks made out of fur, and leather boots, which is what he continues to wear until his apparent death, In issue number 20. You're still alive, Fafnir. I believe in you. Now, sure, you could argue that by the time we meet Fafnir in issue number six, he's a man of the world. He's traveling in foreign lands, and so he dresses a bit better than his Northland brothers, who again (laughs) look like cavemen. But still, I just can't help but find it super weird. And really, the opinion that I formed at this point in regard to how the Northmen are dressed. Is that Barry was trying to use a superhero style for a non superhero book? Think about it for a second. Many superheroes in comics at the time were nude figures with lines drawn on them in various places to represent where the gloves would be or the trunks or the boots or whatnot. Color that in with some blues, reds, and possibly yellows, and boom, you've got a superhero. That's what a lot of these Northmen look like the nude form with lines drawn in to represent the trunks and maybe a sash or a sleeveless shirt. And because of that, the art, I don't know, to me, it just feels super basic, especially when you compare it to what we're getting now as of issue number 21. Still, with that being said, I did really enjoy my second read of issue number one. And despite the fact that with issue number 22, we've only covered 8% of the total Marvel Comics Conan the Barbarian run, It was fun to take a look back at where it all started. Even just 20 or so issues, and two years later, the book has changed a lot. Both the art and the writing have matured quite a bit over those two years, and that fact alone has me excited to keep on reading, and I'm looking forward to seeing how much the comic changes over the next two years. And you'll still be there with me, right? I certainly hope so. And that's it, folks. That's all I have to say about this issue. What did you think? Did you reread it right along with me? What are your thoughts on how the book looked then in issue number one to how it looks in issue 21? What are your thoughts? Steven or else at gmail.com. Next week, we take another short break from the Marvel run to look at Conan the Barbarian issue number six from Titan Comics and Heroic Signatures. Until then, folks... Keep your swords close by. Never stop treading them jeweled thrones. And most importantly, be nice to each other. Bye. Many wars and feuds did Conan fight. Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time... He became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. From Stephen or... <clears throat> From Stephen or Else Media, this is Hither Came Conan, the podcast... From Stephen... <clears throat> they are the Icer and they have come to make war upon the Vanir. Damn it. They are the Icer and they have come to make war upon the Vanir. The... They are the icer and they have come to make war upon the Vanir, the... Jesus, (laughs) (laughs) f***. Asking the youth... (laughs) We hope it'll ease the blow just a bit to those of you who picked up this ish on the basis of the cover. (laughs) We hope it'll ease the blow just a bit to those of you who picked up this ish based on the... I just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. Enough, (laughs) talk.